Thank you, choir, for that beautiful anthem. Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As he was sit setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all those since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold in this age houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be here. This is a little weird. Do you... <laughs> Do you want to look at the back of my head or would you, is that okay? All right. Is it okay if I'm down here? All right. It's good to be here. Um, I was talking with Patrick this morning and uh, I think this is my first time uh, preaching in this, uh, in this church. Um, I've slept on the floor in Duncan Hall uh, 10 years ago or so when the rest program was happening, um, and I've been here for a number of different meetings and such, but it's a joy to be with you all this morning and to uh, struggle with you through this scripture passage. So uh, are you ready to struggle a little bit? I, uh, I've never been very good with money. And I've never really uh, had a want or a need to accumulate a lot of it. 
which is probably why I've never been too good with money, uh, which may be why I've never really wanted to be rich. Money is a difficult thing to talk about. It's one of those taboo subjects that we don't bring up in polite company or at parties uh, or in a pulpit. When my acquaintances in high school and college talked about wanting to make lots of money, I never really understood the allure. Maybe it sounds like a humble brag or a confession of my socialistic tendencies, but I can't remember a time when I haven't been a share-the-wealth kind of person. I guess you could say that I have a bias against money because as far as I can tell, wherever there are vast reserves and stockpiles of it, there always seem to be people who don't have enough of it and they're suffering and dying as a result. The land on which we stand was originally stolen from the Coast Miwok people who used to inhabit this area. The country in which we live was founded on stolen land and expanded into stolen land. The land was stolen and turned into a possession, a thing to own. It was cut into pieces and sold, deforested, drilled into, developed, desecrated, so that some people could get rich. The foundations of our current understanding of labor are deeply rooted in the economics of chattel slavery, in which people were bought and sold and treated worse than animals. Their bodies assigned monetary value in proportion to the value of the labor that could be extracted from them, so that some people could get rich. The quest for riches is fraught with theft, murder, kidnapping, exploitation, all of them or some of them in varying degrees, depending on who is on the quest. So many people have been killed in the name of money. So many people have died. We still live with their ghosts. They haunt us even today, and we still hold our money close and work incredibly hard to protect and preserve it. When I was working with the street community, one of the most common questions that church folks would ask me was, what should I do when a homeless person asks me for money? And they were often surprised when I answered, give them money if you want. And if you do, let go of it completely. Don't place conditions on how they spend that money, not even in your own mind. Just give it away. And people find it often quite difficult to do that because we want to know where our money is going. We want to know that it's being put to good use. And so many social service organizations will tell you, give us that money instead, and we will make sure that people don't misuse it. Because we don't really trust people who are poor to do the right thing. Because we have been taught for so long that poverty is a moral failing, 
And it's a lack of personal responsibility that led to poverty in the first place. And we've continued to fail in seeing that it is our moral failing that we haven't created communities in which there is no poverty. I'll do a little thought experiment here. Next time someone asks you for a dollar, consider giving them $20 instead. Consider what that $20 means to you, where it might end up. Consider what that $20 might mean to that person in front of you who is out there asking for dollars. How does it feel to consider this? What about or even $1,000 isn't going to fix all of someone's problems. It's not going to drastically change their situation. But $20 might get them a nice lunch. $200 might get their car out of impound or pay their dog's vet bill. $1,000 might help to shelter and feed them for a few nights. Wouldn't we all be able to rest a little bit better if we knew that everybody had enough? Wouldn't it be easier for everyone if we just gave it all away? When I was working as the street chaplain in San Rafael, there was a woman whom I'll call Harriet. She was about to lose her housing because her husband had left. She had lost her job, went off her medication, wasn't able to pay her rent. When she received the eviction notice, she frantically went around to every agency, to every case manager, to every person she could find who would listen to her story, Harriet pleaded for help, but there was nothing anyone could do. It was already too late. She would lose her apartment. She became homeless. And Harriet started walking up and down the streets in downtown with all of her belongings. And I mean all of her belongings. She had three or four suitcases, a few boxes, a laundry basket full of bedding, bags, backpacks, a pile of things that was at least five times her size. She would walk one item at a time from one end of the block to the other, back and forth. She'd get to an intersection and carry one piece at a time across the street. Occasionally, someone would be helping her carrying a thing or two, or by standing with the pile of stuff while she walked the items from one corner to the next, back and forth. Over the course of the next few weeks, Harriet's pile actually grew larger, and the police department started getting phone calls about this strange little woman with a pile of suitcases walking back and forth. She wasn't causing a scene, she wasn't screaming or yelling or assaulting anyone, but people did not like 
the sight of her, this small woman with all of her possessions walking around town, it made us all very uneasy. Suddenly, this very personal and previously private problem was now made public. People were calling City Hall daily. After a couple of months, the city and the county worked with local agencies to help move Harriet off the street. And everybody wondered why it had to go so far before significant help was offered. Now, in order to move into her new place, which was a, a group home, uh, Harriet had to get rid of almost all of her stuff. So she carried it all down to the Ritter Center and gave it away to people who needed it. She had to get rid of it. She had no choice. So her choice was to give it away. Stuff can really get in the way. And we live so immersed in a world of stuff. And when we see someone on the sidewalk with all of their stuff, and it's enough stuff to fill an apartment, but there are no walls around it and nothing to contain it, there's a kind of cognitive dissonance that happens. And it's startling that someone without walls could accumulate so much stuff. And then maybe I realize that my walls really are just a container for my stuff. And so much of my life is about my stuff. And some people think of stuff as a reward for all the hard work they do. And some people think that if you can't work, then you don't deserve stuff or a place to keep your stuff. And we get so anxious and worried about all of our stuff. And we put that stuff between ourselves and other people until it gets harder and harder to see them. And it gets harder and harder to see that in this place, where a single family home costs a million dollars, people are still living and dying outside in their cars, in their tents, even now. The chasm between the rich and the poor in the Bay Area and in this whole country is staggeringly wide, and it's getting wider. What would you be willing to give up so that someone else could have enough? Would you give it all away? Because you could, you know, it's... It, it's totally possible. And I think I know why you don't. At least I know why I don't. It's because I want to have some kind of security in a world in which Annie and I might someday find ourselves without enough. And I honestly believe in my heart of hearts that this fear of finding ourselves without enough is what drives so many of our basest, most primal, most instinctual behaviors. And I can't help but think that the reason why we aren't all able to have enough, all of us, every single one of us could have enough, 
is because some of us want to be rich. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I think, I think Jesus feels this way too. Because Jesus finds himself loving this rich man in such a way that he challenges him to live into God's commandments in a different way than he's used to. Jesus loves this rich man so much that he tells him to sell everything he owns, to give the money to the poor, and this is what he lacks. He has everything else. I also think Jesus loves him because Jesus knows that he's lying. Jesus even tells us no one's good except for God. The man had many possessions, and I can't help but think that he acquired many of those things by undervaluing the labor of those very same poor people that Jesus tells him to give his money to. And this is at least a part of the reason why this man is so devastated. It's not only the idea of losing his wealth, but also the thought of facing those people that causes him grief. He just can't imagine it. And then once he has divested himself of his wealth, he has no way of knowing if he's going to have enough for himself. And just look at this Jesus guy and his ragtag group of followers. They don't even know where their next meal is coming from. He can't imagine giving away his wealth to poor people. I bet he's deeply disturbed and fear-stricken by the thought of becoming one of them. In the last unit of clinical pastoral education that I led at the seminary, we read a book called Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age by Bruce Rogers Vaughn. And one of the key points of the book is that our current economic and cultural system of neoliberal capitalism has created a whole new kind of suffering for us as human beings. This suffering has become so embedded in our way of living that we accept it as something that is natural, just the way it is. In the same ways that we think of suffering that's caused by loss or illness or death. And some of us aren't as tangibly affected by this third order suffering, but the people who are less privileged live inside of it uh, every day. And who would those people be? People who can't afford to buy both food and medicine. People who choose not to eat so their children are able to. People who live outside and every day walk past people with the means to enter any store or restaurant they want to. People who work two jobs or more and can't pay their rent. People who are told again and again that if they just work harder and change their attitudes, they can transcend their suffering. Human beings made things this way. For sure, in Jesus' time, 
Life was traumatic for a great many people. Those who were cast out because of a strange or mysterious illness. Women, just women in general. Not to mention women who were sex workers or who were widowed or divorced or gave birth outside of marriage. Workers whose labor was undervalued or used to pay off debts. But it's the same. Human beings made things that way. And I wonder if this man, this rich man, had ever really stopped to consider where his money came from. Or the people who generated that wealth for him. Because money doesn't grow on trees and it doesn't fall from the sky and wealth doesn't just happen. Now, I've studied too much social theory to buy the story that the wealth accrued by one person is simply a reflection of how that one person worked hard. And I think Jesus actually makes this man think about it, maybe for the first time in his life. And the man, he feels grief. Now, grief is a response to loss, real or imagined, actual or anticipated. And even the disciples start to resonate a little bit how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is perplexing because even I, who doesn't feel very wealthy, when compared to so many other people, I am rich beyond imagining. And I am lacking this one thing. The disciples are caught off guard as they often are, and people and Peter starts to make a case for them, but we've left everything behind, he says. Jesus assures him there's going to be plenty, a place to live, community, resources, not without hardship, though. All the things will be turned over. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And it challenges us to consider where are we in that structure? It's difficult to imagine that it could be so hard for me to enter God's kingdom because I want to have nice things. And because I have this bias against money, it's easy for me to say that this all doesn't apply to me, and it's easy for me to point at other people who drive Teslas and live in $5 million houses in the hills, but I'm as wrapped up in this as they are because there are people, lots of people who have less than I do. There are people who have a whole lot less than I do. And I read here and in other places in the gospel that Jesus isn't too thrilled with this fact. And this isn't actually what God had hoped for from God's creation. And I read here and in other places in the gospel that being attached 
to these possessions of mine is what will prevent me from entering the fullness of what God created us to be together with each other. And this community, you all are doing some great things with your resources. Your community fridge, for example. The special offerings that you receive. Your monetary support of the food bank and the street chaplaincy. These are great things. And, because I'm a visitor here, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to think bigger. You know, as Patrick said, tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. And you've got this anti-racism team here, don't you? And what might it look like to start a conversation about collectively using wealth to offer reparations to the indigenous people who used to steward this land or to the descendants of enslaved people who live in this county? What might it look like to collectively use your wealth to build or buy housing for people who can't otherwise afford it? Because, my friends and relations, this, this, this is the good news. That there can be enough for everyone. There, there can be. That we can choose together to make sure that there is enough. To make sure that nobody has to go without. Because while these systems were made by human beings, they can be unmade and remade by human beings too. That will involve our willingness to be uncomfortable, to consider what we are willing to give up, to be willing to grieve those losses and to step into something that is new and unknown. It means trusting, trusting that we together are who we need most. Amen.